great to be back here. Um, I'm really enjoying the opportunity to talk through the uh, doctrine of the Blessed Trinity. It is, um, John mentioned in my book, The Deep Things of God. Uh, it sounds weird to say this, but it really is my life message. My life message is uh, that the doctrine of the Trinity is good for the church, that uh, evangelical churches in particular need to get a hold of it, get on the right side of it, and, and really run with it. So I, it, it might sound morbid. When I finished writing that book um, several years ago, I, I think I said to my wife, well, I don't intend to die anytime real soon, but if I were to, that's kind of what I wanted to say. So, you know, I've got lots of other books I want to write, lots of other things I want to say, but basically that, that, that the Trinity uh, changes everything. So I'm really enjoying getting the chance to walk through this with you on the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity, a lot on blessedness last week and a little more on Trinity uh, this week. And I want to talk about overhearing the joy of God, overhearing the joy of God. You know, when you overhear something, you can't help but think that that's how it really is. You know, if somebody says something to you, you listen, um, you give them the benefit of the doubt, you believe them, but when you overhear them talking, not to you, but about you, that's when you know you're getting the real thing, right? When you get communication that was intended for you, it's pretty straightforward, but when you somehow get let in on communication that isn't intended for you, but it's, it's really obvious that you're getting the actual story. You say to yourself, oh, this is how they talk when I'm not around. Yeah, this is the real stuff. Communication that is overheard is immediately, um, communication that is overheard immediately and decisively overcomes communication that is simply heard. Can, can I still say in, in uh, this year that the overheard trumps the heard? Yeah, can, is that verb still usable? Um, the, the overheard really trumps the stuff that we hear. For instance, you might have heard the very old story. Um, I spent some time on Snopes.com to see if this is true, and uh, it's not, but it's really old. So uh, you may have heard it. About a woman who stayed in a hotel and discovered that the room was infested with bed bugs. You know this story? My dad used to tell me this story. Yeah, it's, I know it's gross. So she got out of there as soon as possible. Just, she just ran, you know, just get out. Then she wrote back later a fiery letter to the management demanding a refund. And in response, she received a personal, typed, two-page letter from the president of the hotel company not the hotel, the actual company, nationally, expressing shock and shame that this kind of terrible thing had happened, this violation of hygiene, bed bugs, this is nasty, promising to investigate that particular hotel immediately and stating that the managers of the entire region were on notice, that they were in big trouble, their jobs were on the line if anything like this ever happened again. She was so impressed by the heartfelt letter and the promise of decisive action she didn't even care anymore about getting her money back for a one-night stay. This was obviously a big deal to this company. But as she set the letter down, a third slip of paper fell out of the envelope. She pulled it out and read it, and it said, Maria, send this old battle axe the bed bug letter. <laughs> All right, now, now guess which one she believed. Did she believe the elaborate two-page thing that was clearly intended for her or the little nine-word note not meant for her? Clearly, she believed the thing she accidentally overheard. Why? Because it was the key to how to interpret the bigger letter. There is something special about overheard communication. In modern politics, we have something called the open mic gaffe. You know, the open mic gaffe. When someone's talking, they don't think there's a microphone on, but they are on camera. The mic can pick it up. All kinds of versions of this. Either your own mic's on, or you're standing right by someone and their mic's on. There are lots of these. Um, most of them are pretty sad and sordid, uh, but my favorite one is from back in 2005 when French President Jacques Chirac was caught bad-mouthing the UK 
in a conversation with the leaders of Russia and Germany. So you got this, this club, right? France, Germany, and Russia are hanging out talking, and they're trying to kind of make nice with each other. Chirac thought that only Putin and Schroeder could hear him when he said about the British, ah, the British, you can't really, I'm not going to do a French accent because this is going to be insulting enough without that kind of stuff. Um, uh, <laughs> Chirac said, you can't really trust people who have such bad cuisine. Yeah? Then, the, then the, the German and the Russian laughed, so he went on, oh, their food's the worst. The only food worse than British food is Finnish food. Yeah? Food from Finland's even, am I insulting everybody yet? Let me get on with this. Um, in fact, the only thing the, Europeans, uh, the British have ever done for European agriculture is give us mad cow disease. So, so um, well, this got picked up and reported. And um, so just a few weeks later, they were negotiating about who was going to get the Olympics at that time. When uh, Chirac had to sit down at table with British leaders to kind of have a meal, as you can imagine, it was awkward. Why? Because it doesn't matter what the president of France says to you when he's talking to you. You know what he really thinks about you when he's talking to Germany and Russia about your lousy food. This was before the Great British Bake Off. And also, apparently, um, someone from, from um, Scotland had apparently made him eat some haggis a little bit before this. So there's some backstory to get him off the hook, but still. Well, to go from the ridiculous to the sublime, uh, we're going to talk this morning about overhearing God. Overhearing God. This is the second sermon in a three-part series on the Blessed Trinity. Last week, we talked a lot about blessedness as a divine attribute, and I did my best to kind of get us inside that doctrine of the blessedness of God, his beatitude, and try to understand what it's like to be God. Right? As I say that, I think, yeah, you can't preach on that. What was I even thinking? This week, we're going to bring in a little bit more of the second half of the title, Blessed Trinity, and we're going to get a little more Trinitarian with it. And the way we're going to get Trinitarian is to overhear the Trinity. The first place we want to start listening is in Luke 10, 21. We'll be in Luke 3 a little bit later, but Luke 10, verse 21. Jesus has just sent out 70 disciples to the towns and villages, and they've all come back to preach the kingdom. They've gone out to the, to the, um, to the villages to preach the kingdom of God, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. They've had mixed results, but they are very excited by some of the positive responses they've had. And they come back, and they're talking about it, and Jesus encourages them, yes, to rejoice in their ministry. So he's, he's kind of working with this, this group of 70, telling, that's right, rejoice in your ministry, but rejoice even more that your names are written in heaven, he says. Rejoice even more in your salvation. And then after talking to them about rightly ordering their rejoicing, he's talking to them about joy and what you should be glad about and, and what level of gladness you should have about various things. Then he stops talking to them altogether, and he just starts talking to his father. Luke 10, 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Well, there's a lot here, and the interesting thing is that Jesus has gone from talking to his disciples to just talking to his Father. We're really hearing God the Son talk to God the Father here. Uh, it's a very Trinitarian passage, right? This is about as short as you can get the persons of the Trinity into one little phrase. He rejoiced in the Spirit and said, Father. 
It's a great line. He rejoiced in the Spirit. Um, Matthew gives us this story. We can tell from Mark where it ought to be. But only Luke, the narrator, tells us this as a narrator, that the thing Jesus did then was rejoice in the Spirit. And then he said, then we get what he says to the Father. It's very Trinitarian. Um, He rejoiced in the Spirit and said, Father, is as clear a Trinity passage as Matthew 28, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's just that we don't have those terms there, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But there's a Trinitarian passage here. And it's a blessed Trinity passage because the Father, Son, and Spirit are united in this verse in their joy. He rejoiced in the Spirit. He thanked the Father. See what's going on here in the life of Jesus. Um, I remember back when we had all these bracelets that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And um, I, I, I liked those, but I always wanted a more Trinitarian answer, right? What would Jesus do? The will of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity, right? In this case, what would Jesus do? Rejoice in the Father, uh, or rejoice in the Spirit, and thank the Father. So if you want to imitate Christ, rejoice in the Holy Spirit, and thank God the Father. That is, there's blessedness here. There's an exchange of joy and gratitude among these three persons of the one God. There's an exchange of other things, too. For instance, all things. You see that in verse 22? What's the father giving the son? Like, it's the son's birthday? I don't know how that works. But anyway, the, son, the father wants to give the son something. What's he give him? He gives him all things. The father's given all things to the son. Such was your gracious will. The Father has a plan and a purpose that is sovereign and full of grace, and the Son likes it. The Son delights in it. The Son rejoices in it, thanks the Father for it. The other thing going on here, besides it's the Trinity, it's the Blessed Trinity, it's also knowledge of the Blessed Trinity. This is something God has made known to us. Uh, I don't know. Sneakiness is not a divine attribute, as far as I know. Um, But there is a sneaky, there's a sideways, there's kind of a slant way of getting in at this, right? God has made this known. We have knowledge of the blessed Trinity. Look at what it says. Nobody knows the Son but the Father. Nobody knows the Father but the Son. It's really a closed circle of knowledge. Like if you want into this club, one of them's going to have to invite you in. In this club, there is knowledge of God, but nobody knows the Son except the Father, and nobody knows the Father except the Son. Um, the only way in is if one of them lets you in, and that's what it says. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom he chooses to reveal him. This is the positive version of what you may have experienced the negative version of um, in interacting with bureaucracies, where you you can't file this form until you file the other form, but you can't file the other form until you file this form. You think, oh no, it's a vicious circle. I'm locked out. Somebody, I'm going to have to bribe someone at the DMV or something to, to get into this circle. That's the negative side that we experience. But what's going on here is there is knowledge of God within God. The Son can reveal the Father because the Son knows the Father. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, John 1, uh, 1 John 1 says. One of the things that means is that there are no dark corners in God that God is not aware of. It's, it's, it's pure light. There's no darkness within God. The Trinitarian way to say that is the Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father. And that divine self-knowledge is communicated to us when we hear it, or, more to the point, when we overhear it. When we hear the Father and the Son conversing, and we get to hear what they're saying to each other and understand what it means about us. If we listen to what the Son says to the Father and what the Father says to the Son, but then that's kind of the powerful piece, what the Father says to the Son. I want to look at that the best we can. 
Um, we can listen to and overhear what the Son says to the Father, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here he is talking to his 70 disciples, and when he prays, he vocalizes it, and you hear it right out loud. That's why you can hear the Son talking to the Father. This is, by the way, a great Bible study. If you arrange the synoptic Gospels from the shortest to the longest, if you go like Mark, Matthew, Luke, and you read them in order, you'll notice something. They give us more and more of what Jesus has to say to his Father. If you watch this as you read the Gospels, Mark, the shortest one, really, I think, only has Jesus saying one thing to the Father. It's right at the end. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what, you, what I will, but what you will. Wow. I mean, that's, you wait the whole Gospel of John, you, or Gospel of Mark, you get through 16 chapters, you get this one thing, and it's very precious, right? You realize, oh, I just got to hear the Son speaking to the Father. This is what the Son says to the Father. Well, then you turn to Matthew, and there is a lot more. And then you turn to Luke, and there's all a lot more, including this in chapter 10, because Luke emphasizes prayer a lot. And so he, he goes out of his way to tell us lots of stories about Jesus praying. Then you get to the Gospel of John. When you go out the other end of the Synoptic Gospels, you come to John, who's kind of doing his own thing and apparently has a license to do that. John comes along and gives us four or five chapters just of Jesus talking to his Father. If you want to overhear the Son talking directly to the Father about us, John is your book. I'm not even going to turn over there. It's too good. Just, just on your own, look through John 17 sometime and prepare to be blown away. Like Jesus says things to his Father. He says, I'm praying for them. He says to his Father, we get to overhear it. In fact, he says, I'm not just praying for these disciples in the upper room with him. I'm praying for the ones who are going to believe based on their testimony. That is most definitely us, right? This is clearly a moment where we get to overhear Jesus talking to the Father about actually us. This is inside information, and it's all right here. God the Son talking to God the Father, and it's amazing. It's about the knowledge and the glory and the joy and the Holy Spirit that they have between themselves and that we are going to share in with them. So I know you'll go read it. For now, though, um, don't go read it. Just keep listening to me. It's, it's a polite thing to do. And I'm talking about the Gospel of Luke. I know you'll read it, though, because it's your chance to flip over to John 17 and overhear what God says to God about you and me. That is some powerful overhearing. My wife Susan had some sweet grandparents who made a habit of talking to each other about their grandkids. You could just, you'd be in one room and you'd hear them in the next room, just grandma and grandpa talking to each other. Isn't Susan growing up to be a lovely young girl? Oh, she has just such a nice way with everything. Such a helper around the house. I just adore that girl. Now, when people compliment you, you more or less believe them. But when you overhear them saying nice things about you to somebody else, you really know you've got the truth, right? Plus, you get the bonus of getting to feel sneaky. Ooh, wow, inside information. That's what Grandma and Grandpa talk about when I, they think I can't hear them. Now, there's some chance that Grandma and Grandpa knew little Susan could hear them. I mean, they were old and wise, and maybe they knew it would be good for a little girl to be allowed to overhear them loving her and praising her virtues. Um, I wouldn't attribute manipulativeness to them. You know, the kind I mean like, gosh, that Susan sure is good at making her bed and doing the dishes. Right? Yep. Getting those dishes done sure is something she's consistently good at. I like when she does that. It's that kind of bogus, intentionally overheard manipulation is unworthy of good people. It's just we all know it's not right. Um, but if it's real, 
If Susan was actually held in high esteem by her grandparents, and they talked about it with each other when she wasn't there, and she got to hear that inside information, she might, in fact, legitimately just swell up with joy and go make her bed. Overhearing is more powerful than hearing. It's inside information. So it reminds me of another open mic gaffe. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan was preparing for a radio interview, and when the sound techs asked him to do a mic check, instead of saying check one, two or something, he cleared his throat and said into the mic, I'm not going to do the Reagan imitation either, it's too easy. Um, My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. It's 1984, this is like serious Cold War time. Well, the first response was to wonder what kind of knucklehead Hollywood cowboy Ronald Reagan must have been to crack a perverse joke like that and think the story wouldn't spread. Of course, the news media, it didn't go um, out on the radio broadcast. I don't think there's even a recording of it, but everyone went and told every other reporter exactly what had happened. So it spread. But the second reaction was to wonder about old Ronald Reagan. If he might have done that on purpose, precisely so it would spread to let Russia have a little secret tip in 1984 and the whole world know that he was exactly the kind of Hollywood cowboy who was entirely comfortable making jokes about this kind of show of force. It's one thing for the leaders of Russia to hear that from America. It's another thing altogether for them to overhear it. Right? Overhearing is more powerful than hearing because it lets you know what people really think. Now, there is one specific sense in which these two illustrations apply to the Trinity. If we overhear the father and the son talking, it's not because they made a mistake. They weren't trying to keep a secret and failing to do so. It's not like they're incompetent secret keepers. Um, If they wanted to keep a secret, they could keep a secret. Uh, They're really good at it. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. Um, It's not my job as a systematic theologian to sneak around behind the back of God and come out with goodies that he did not reveal. Right? The secret things belong to the Lord. God has all kinds of secrets he has not told us about. You want to hear some of them? You can't. Shame on you. You shouldn't want to hear them. Right? I can't tell you. You can't hear them. We shouldn't even be talking about this. The secret things belong to the Lord. And God is able to keep the depths of those mysteries a secret. Some of them, I, I don't even know. It's a secret why they're a secret. I don't even know why they're a secret. Other things, they're just, we wouldn't get it. You know, it's one of those, if you have to ask, you, uh, you'll never know sorts of things. God's got lots of stuff going on. But the things revealed, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the things revealed belong to us. They belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of these law. They're, they're teachable. They're explainable. They're intergenerationally transmissible. We can pass them on. They're practical. They're for our obedience so that we can do the works of the law. So here's something I need to clarify. When we overhear the Trinity, the idea of overhearing the Trinity, that still counts as revelation, right? We're not being truly sneaky in the sense of hearing something we weren't supposed to hear. God apparently intends for us to overhear what the Father and the Son say to each other. God has chosen to make some things known to us directly. I am the Lord your God, walk in my ways. That's direct. But also to make some things known to us indirectly and to do it in this way. To talk in front of us where we can hear about what matters to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Overhearing is the result of God's will to make himself known to us in this way. All this inter-Trinitarian conversation is intentionally being held in public for our instruction. 
Now, I assume there must be inter-Trinitarian conversation going on in private, uh, and, and what that is, who even knows, what must have passed between Father and Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit in eternity past before we were here to overhear it? Who knows? Um, but what they said to and about one another for us to overhear is not only a solid foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity, it's also a marvelous invitation for us to be included in that conversation. But what about when you overhear something that isn't about you? What if you just hear two people talking and what they say doesn't implicate you at all? That's what we get in Luke 3. So look at Luke 3. Luke 3, uh, verses 21 to 22. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came down from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son, says the Father to the Son. This is the consummate word of the Father to the Son. It states who the Son is. It states that he is beloved, the beloved one, in whom I am well pleased. Um... I'm not going to say this is the son's nickname in heaven or anything like that, but when God the Father says, you know, the beloved one, um, I, I don't think the angels are scratching their heads going, oh, he loves everybody. I don't know who he's talking about. I mean, I think it's the beloved. This is who the son is. He is the one in whom the Father is well pleased. The one the Father delights in. This is overhearing Trinitarian joy when the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You are, according to the Gospel of Luke here, You are my beloved son, the father says to the son. When that eternal word, the eternal beloved one, the second person of the Trinity, takes flesh and lives among us as one of us, he lives out in human history, in the stuff of human nature, our stuff, human stuff. He is living out in human stuff, in a real human life that goes through ages and stages, turned 30, stepped forward into public life, and got in the Jordan River, and God the Father spoke from heaven the words that had always echoed in heaven from all eternity, in the very being of God. You are my son. I love you and am pleased in you. And it happened right there in the river on that day as the temporal, worldly, historical enactment of the eternal truth of who God is. Who is God? The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit. This is the one God the Blessed Trinity. The relation that Father and Son always had was spoken out loud from earth to heaven for us to hear or to overhear. You are my Son. The Father says a lot more to the Son. Um, If we had a lot more time, we could go through a lot of the Old Testament and show how it shows up in the New Testament as the Father speaking to the Son and the Son speaking to the Father. In Psalm 110, verse 1, which, by the way, is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So if you want to get the Bible quiz right, what passage from the Old Testament is most frequently quoted in the New? It's Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is all over the New Testament. If you could time travel back and hang out in a first century church and worship with the first Christians, they would all be talking Psalm 110. They would all be saying, remember that time that the Lord said to Jesus, that the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what's going on. The Son has been exalted. 
Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, makes it clear that the Son sat down at the Father's right hand after he had made forgiveness of sins. You can read the whole psalm, Psalm 110. It's the Father and the Son talking to each other. Um, And you can read another psalm to see what the Son says to the Father. Psalm 16, uh, David says to God, and the more you read it, and you read Acts 2 and compare it all, you realize, oh, this shows up in the New Testament as what the Son says to the Father. Psalm 16 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. The Son says to the Father, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the voice of God the Son telling God the, Son, God the Father, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. From all eternity, the Son has said this to the Father. But when he says it in the flesh, he says it as the one who has completed our salvation and taken his seat at the right hand of God the Father as the finisher of a finished work. When he does that, he has enacted the blessedness of God and opened it up to us. Do you get that? The eternal blessedness of God is that the Father has always said to the Son, you are my Son, I'm well pleased in you. The Son has always said to the Father, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. When the crucified, risen, ascended, glorified Jesus says to the Father, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, he does that as the one who has enacted the blessedness of God in order to save us. Do you see what's going on in here? There is a happy land of the Trinity where the blessedness of God is fully perfect and fully realized, from eternity past, and it's eternally secure. It's happy there. Father and Son love each other in the unity of the Spirit. What we get in the Gospels over and over at the crucial moments is we get to overhear conversation and communication and interaction from that place on purpose. God wants us to know about the Blessed Trinity, and he wants us to hear it by overhearing it. Now, there's a scene in Wuthering Heights, Emily Bronte's strange, moving, bizarre novel, Wuthering Heights, um, where as children, Heathcliff and Kathy sneak away from Wuthering Heights to spy on Thrushcross Grange. You know this Thrushcross Grange? Wuthering Heights, for one thing, it's up on, up on this kind of hill peak, um, you know, uh, it weathers up there. I don't know. It's like, it's like the wind is blowing and stuff is shaking and the house is haunted. It's, it's not a very nice house. It's big and impressive, but it seems like it was built by barbarians and it seems to be inhabited by barbarians. Any light and heat in there is from a giant monster fireplace that you just chuck entire logs into. Um, it's smoky. People don't know how to treat each other. Like I said, it just, it just it weathers. You don't want to be there. Um, uh, all the weird stuff that Emily Bronte could imagine about a really dysfunctional, dead, cold, empty, heartless family is right there at Wuthering Heights. So, understandably, Kathy and Heathcliff sneak away, and they look through the windows at this other place about four miles away. It's down in the valley. The wind's not weathering. It's really sweet. It's beautiful. And they look through the window of Thrushcross Grange, and they see inside, like, silverware. Well, they don't eat with their hands here. They have, like, silverware. They wash things. They're sitting around at tables. They're nicely dressed. They're speaking politely to each other. They have a little pet dog. Um, And it's just this early scene where they're peeking through the window going, we don't know a life like that. Look, what do you think it must be like in there? What, What do you think they say to each other in there? What's it like to know how to live? What's it like to actually have live and to be able, uh, to actually know how to live, to have a life together? What's it like to be in a household with a decent family 
What's that like? It's civilized. Uh, it's well-appointed. It's lovely. It's gracious. They peek in from outside, and they can see what's going on. Heathcliff, I don't want to spoil the novel for you or the movie or whatever. Heathcliff can't handle it, so he runs off and does terrible things. Kathy ends up spending several weeks at Thresh Cross, and she can kind of be assimilated to its ways in certain ways. Um, now, this is a very broken analogy because um, Wuthering Heights is a very strange book, and I'm leaving out all kinds of weird stuff that happens there. The people in Thrush Cross aren't perfect. They're actually fighting over who gets to pet the puppy right when we look in through the window and everything. Bronte isn't interested in developing Thrush Cross as any kind of image of heaven exactly. But that scene, I think, offers a glimpse of what it's like to be on the outside looking in to a place of beauty. It offers a glimpse of seeing beauty, light, warmth, love, fellowship, peace, bliss. In God's revelation to us of the Blessed Trinity... That life of joy is what we're on the outside of, looking into. But we're invited in. If we weren't invited in, we wouldn't have been allowed to overhear the words of joy that pass between the Father and the Son and the unity of the Spirit. You're my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In what we get to overhear in the life of Jesus and his communion with the Father in the joy of the Spirit, is the Blessed Trinity calling us into that life of joy. Thank you.